Thanks. Russ Burrell and I were speaking before service, and we decided that it would probably be a good idea that for that movie night that we will have a special section for those of you that have The Princess Bride memorized <laughs> and will feel compelled to recite the entirety of it so that everybody else can come and have a good time. So, Iocane powder. I bet my life on it. <clears throat> we are men of action. Lies do not become us. That'll be my section. Okay. Oh, my sweet Wesley. Okay. Let's recover. Thank you, Andrew, for that earlier. <clears throat> it's a good thing I don't believe in karma, because what goes around comes around. <laughs> David Brooks is an author, a columnist, a speaker, and uh, several years ago, he gave a talk um, that I'm going to show you a brief excerpt from, a TED Talk, uh, talking about, um, well, the centerpiece of his talk has to do with resumes and eulogies. Now, kids, a resume is that summary sheet of all of your education and your experience and your work that you get to give a job. And uh, the closest thing that you might approximate to it is maybe if you end up, if you end up going to college, you did a college application in which you give them your transcript and whatever else you did, all those lies, and just so that you can get into the school. Um, a eulogy is that thing they say at your funeral. Talking about lies, right? Um, when, you, when you get to a eulogy, they talk about all the things. I'm sorry, that sounds cynical. Resumes and eulogies are his topic, but he wants to use those as sort of um, two ways of thinking about living. And so I'm going to show you a brief excerpt. He, he talks too fast and he says too much in a too short a time. I mean, who does that? But um, <laughs> here's David Brooks talking about resumes and eulogies. So I've been thinking about the difference between resume virtues and the eulogy virtues. The resume virtues are the ones you put on your resume which uh, are the skills you bring to the marketplace. The eulogy virtues are the ones that can mention the eulogy, which are deeper, who are you are in your depth, what is the nature of your relationships, are you bold, loving, dependable, consistency. And most of us, including me, would say that the eulogy virtues are the more important of the virtues. But, at least in my case, are they the ones that I think about the most? And the answer is no. So I've been thinking about that problem, and a thinker who's helped me think about it is a guy named Joseph Soloveitchik, who was a rabbi who wrote a book called The Lonely Man of Faith in 1965. Soloveitchik said there are two sides of our natures, which he called Adam 1 and Adam 2. Adam 1 is the worldly, ambitious, external side of our nature. He wants to build, create, create companies, create innovation. Adam 2 is the humble side of our nature. Adam 2, not only to do good, but to be good, to live in a way internally that honors God, creation, and our possibilities. Adam 1 wants to conquer the world. Adam 2 wants to hear a calling and obey the world. Adam 1 savors accomplishment. Adam 2 savors inner consistency and strength. Adam 1 asks how things work. Adam 2 asks why we're here. Adam 1's motto is success. Adam 2's motto is love, redemption, and return. And Soloveitchik argued that these two sides of our nature are at war with each other. We live in perpetual self-confrontation between the external success and the internal value. And the tricky thing I'd say about these two sides of our nature is they work by different logics. The external logic is an economic logic. Input leads to output, risk leads to reward. The internal side of our nature is a moral logic and often an inverse logic. You have to give to receive. You have to surrender to something outside yourself to gain strength within in yourself. You have to conquer the desire to get what you want. In order to fulfill yourself, you have to forget yourself. In order to find yourself, you have to lose yourself. 
we happen to live in a society that favors Adam 1 and often neglects Adam 2. And the problem is that turns you into a shrewd animal who treats life as a game and you become a cold, calculating creature who slips into a sort of mediocrity where you realize you're, there's a difference between your desired self and your actual self. You're not earning the sort of eulogy you want. I know that goes so fast, and he covers so much ground in a short amount of time, but it's two orientations to living that we all are properly aware of or properly engaged in. Um, kids, uh, that moved a lot of fa- that moved really fast, and, and, and in some ways I feel for you because there's a conspiracy against you. Um, at six seconds after your birth, they were already measuring your APGAR score. You are already in the hopper of trying to show achievement or possibility, and, and we've been measuring you ever since. There is an index for everything, and that only gets more detailed and more demanding, and it has even greater consequences the older you get, and so I'm sorry. On behalf of all the adults of the world, I'm sorry. Because what, argue, what, what he's making the argument here is that if you, if you continually think about, will this look good on a resume? And you know you do it. What that ends up doing is squelching out all of your concern or consideration for those things that might ever end up getting mentioned in your eulogy. And the society is shaped and structured and depends on focusing on those things that more likely go on your resume than will ever show up in your eulogy. And, and that's one of its structural problems. Why am I talking about all of this? Kids, look. You can run the 100 meter in 4.8 and still be a punk. You can get a 1560 on your SAT and be the last person that anybody would want to ever spend time with. And so there's this danger of thinking, look at all I'm capable of doing, and yet forgetting about who are you at your core. And what is true for you kids is, should be doubly true for us adults. We're more responsible for what happens in the world. Why why am I bringing all that up? My argument to us this morning, using David Brooks' little scheme there for thinking about a life lived for the resume and a life lived for the eulogy, not entirely, but in large part, depends on what we're doing today on what is known as the Sabbath. That how you and I spend this day, whether we do and in what manner we do, has a huge effect on whether or not the resume thinking of living will swallow up all the thoughts about our eulogy. We have to think about this. And that's why we're doing a series on the Ten Commandments. The first four commandments are primarily about what does it mean to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The last six commandments have to do with what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. Commandment 4, which we're looking at today, and Commandment 5, which we'll look at next week, they're kind of hinged. They're kind of hinged commandments. You look at any door, every door's got a hinge, and every hinge has got two parts. There's the part that sticks to the door and the part that sticks to the door frame. We're going to look at the door part today. Commandment 4 about the Sabbath has everything to do with what will prepare you both to love the Lord and love your neighbor? My argument is you won't do either unless you give some a credit to what the fourth commandment is asking. 
So we're going to look at the fourth commandment somehow, amplified or not. And we're going to consider rest. Sabbath literally means a rest, a pause, a ceasing and desisting. And we're going to look at it under three heads. The, the priority of that rest, the purpose of that rest, and the practice of that rest. What is the priority of it? What is the purpose of it? What does it mean to practice it? We're going to pair a reading of the fourth commandment with a text in the New Testament from the words of Jesus to kind of help put it in context. So I wonder if we might again aspire to that rest as we stand and listen to what he has to say in it. We're in Deuteronomy chapter 5 at first. We'll start in verse 12. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall do no work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. And then in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2, starting in verse 23. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus says to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the high priest and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priests to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can sit. Okay, three heads. Priority, purpose, practice. Let's talk about the priority first. Start for the first word. Observe the Sabbath day. What does observe mean? Put on your glasses. Oh, look, it's a Sabbath coming. No. Observe comes from the Hebrew word shamar, which shows up early and often in the book of Genesis. In Genesis chapter 1, God's first instructions to Adam and to Eve was to keep the garden. Same word. Not, oh look, it's a garden. Yes, Adam, it's a garden. Get to it. No, it's a garden. You keep it. You tend it. And then Adam and Eve throw that off. Forget it. You know, I'm going to be my own God. And so they say, I'm sorry, you're out of here. Um, you're going to move on. You're, this is no longer for you. And then they, God sets a guard over the Eden, over Eden with a flaming sword. Imagine that image. And there it says, guarding the way, protecting it from those who are not welcome in it any longer. And then in Genesis chapter 4, which is forever immortalized in that famous scene of East of Eden with James Dean on the swing when his father comes in and he says, where's Cain? And Abel says, or Cain, kill Abel. Cain, where's Abel? Um, Am I my brother's keeper? Do I look after him? 
Am I his protector? That's the sense of what it means to observe it. And it's coupled with this idea of keeping it holy. To set it apart. To put, to create a space and to set a boundary of time and activity such that you keep certain things in and keep other things out. There are days when you will set out and set aside certain clothes that you will wear for that special day. There are some occasions in which you will bring out certain dishes that you don't ordinarily use for a certain day. They are set apart. They have a particular purpose and a function. There is something special about them both, whether the clothes or the dishes. That day is to be observed in that way, to keep, to guard, to protect, to set apart for a particular day. And what is the form of that observance? What does it mean to keep this day unto the Lord? Well, it's kind of twofold. One is to stop it. To cease and desist from everything that you are doing the rest of the week that allows you to survive, to achieve, to whatever it might be that you helps you get along in life, cut it out. Stop doing that. Let it go. And that's for everybody in Israel, whether you were born in Israel or not, whether you are a high person of high official and rank, or whether you are a servant to a family. This rest applies to everybody. Nobody is more important, more deserving. Nobody to whom this rest is more applicable. Everybody who is connected to Israel in any way, who lives beneath God, who bears the image of God, that rest for them. Cease and desist. But it's more than just a break. Sabbath has a whole complex of words that you might associate it with. One is rest. Another is pause. But it is not simply about pausing from what you ordinarily do. It is pausing so as to give something unto the Lord to a degree and in a manner that you perhaps don't also do when you're doing the other things in order to live. That is the priority. You stop what you ordinarily do so that you can focus on who he is. Now that's That's the nature of the priority. We'll get into the specifics of it later when we get into the practice. But for now, we need to ask ourselves this. Why is this a priority? Uh, Walter Brueggemann is an Old Testament theologian, and, and he would argue that the Ten Commandments are not simply a guidebook for how to be uh, aligned with the morality of the Lord. The Ten Commandments are in some part a way in which you become as the church, a contrast society, as he puts it. You are to be distinct from the rest of the world. Andy Crouch is the name I've mentioned to you later, or before, I'll mention to him again later. He, he will often tell his kids, we are a different family. Not, we're better than them. Not, we look down at everybody that's not like us. But to say to them, to remind them, by virtue of the fact that we stand beneath the Lord as the author and finisher of all of our faith, we're a different family. We do different things. And if we aspire to be indistinguishable from everybody else, we've missed something profound about what it means to be the Lord's. A contrast society stops what they're doing one day a week and focuses their attention on the Lord. 
That's the priority. Why is it a priority? Because there's something more to it than just kind of being replenished and being prepared for the week ahead, though it does have that built into its intention. There's something deeper going on here. There's something that gets lost in the shuffle that the Sabbath day is out to reconnect us to. And here's where, um, raise your hand if you've ever been to Epcot. Never been to Epcot? Yeah, okay, if you've been to Epcot, then it's, inver- it's inevitable that you've been in the big golf ball, right? They call it Spaceship Earth, the ISO, DECA, OCTA, Googlehedron, whatever that thing is, right? And what is that all about? You strap in, you, you sit back, uh, you, you thank God for the air conditioner that's not outside in Florida, and you take a tour, whirlwind tour through history. On your left, the cavemen. On the right, there's the Phoenicians. Oh, don't miss the Greeks on the left. And there's the Romans. Do you see Rome burning? I hear Nero fiddling. And you go through all the world until you get to that part of which they sing that cheesy song, Tomorrow's Child, Tomorrow's Child. Oh, stop. Update it, man. That's the whirlwind tour through history. I'm about to do that for biblical theology right here. All right? I'm going to take one theme that finds its way through the entirety of the Scripture, and we're going to focus on the Old Testament. I'm going to give you a whirlwind tour through Spaceship Bible. Here it is. The first time the, the Ten Commandments are iterated is in Exodus chapter 20. And in verse 11 it says, For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that's in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. What's that doing? That is invoking Genesis chapter 2, which says, On the seventh day God finished his work that he had done and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day. It's the first time the word bless ever shows up in the Bible. And what is God doing the first time when he blesses it? He blesses a day of rest. Look, Sunday afternoons for us, a nap is a blessing. My wife who suffered with insomnia for many, many years will on many occasions awaken from a good night's sleep and say, that was glorious. There is blessing in it. And that makes sense because the first time God ever blesses anything, it's about a day of rest when he ceases and desists from his work, which has its own, what? He stopped? Oh my gosh, what happens? Relax. The point of it is this. Rest shows up from the very beginning. Adam and Eve are dropped into Eden, and there they find their rest in that work, and then what happens? Well, they say, I think we're good. I, he- I hear from an authority that we can be our own gods. You know, I eat from this and everything's fine. And they do and it goes very poorly. Until at such time, uh, Eden is now closed and, and the Lord says, sorry folks, Eden's closed. The shimmering angel out front should have told you. Why? They'd given up on the rest that God had offered. And it says there, the curse is the curse of toil. And we'll get more on that in just a moment. But Adam and Eve forsake the rest that is offered them. Forsake the blessing that comes with thinking about a rest that is given them by God himself, who himself followed his own preaching. He practiced what he preached. But the idea of rest continues. God makes a promise to this dude called Abraham. He says, guess what? I'm going to birth a nation through you. And I'm going to devote a land for you and your offspring, a land in which you will find rest. And when they settle in that land, 
after a very long time, even after going through the Exodus and, and all of that in the wilderness wanderings and they get into the land, but finally there's a moment in which they say they're in the land and on every side they had rest. But no sooner does Israel seem to find its rest in a land that provides them that place that they begin to cozy up with other deities. They begin to find their refuge in other gods. And in time, they lose that land that was meant to be their rest. And they are exiled. Hundreds of years later, I promise I'm almost done with the whirlwind tour through Spaceship Bible here. In Psalm 95, the psalmist says unto Israel, who had already been promised the rest of the land and lost the rest of the land, he says unto them in Psalm 95, Do not harden your hearts as at Meribah and on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That's when Israel quarrels with God, starts to whine, wonders, Where are you? What have you done for me lately? And in Psalm 95, invoking that memory from hundreds of years earlier, don't harden your hearts when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof though they had seen my work. They are a people who go astray in their heart. They shall have not known my ways. They shall not enter my rest. Okay, wait a minute. Why is the psalmist talking about a rest when there's been a rest that was offered and already lost? We're going to conclude this tour here from one text from the New Testament that invokes this memory from Hebrews chapter 4. Don't worry, there will not be a test except for our rest when he says this. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. From Genesis 1 here to Hebrews 4, rest is central. And the author of Hebrews is asking this question, wait a minute. Israel had been offered a rest in the land, and they refused it. They forsook it, and they lost that rest. But God speaks of another rest, another Sabbath rest, which is redundant, another rest rest, like a big rest. What is that rest? Oh, the plot thickens. Stand by. I give you that whirlwind tour identifying the way in which rest threads its way through the entirety of Scripture to make this point. The Sabbath, what you are doing today, is not simply about getting a break. It is about reconnecting to the very storyline of Scripture. It is about remembering something that you have lost in the last six days. That to rest is at the heart of what it means to know the Lord. To walk in rest is to look forward to something that we do not have, but which we might presently enjoy a taste of. It's not just a break so that you can be more productive next week. It is saying to the world, my work, as important it might be, it does not own me. It does not claim me. Oh, it's for me. But it is not my everything. Rest is at the center of what it means to know the Lord. It is at the center of what it means to follow the Lord. Life, to borrow again um, where David Brooks was going, look, if you spend the entirety of your life thinking, whether you know it or not, about stuff that might look good on a resume, I will tell you that will not be a life at rest. 
Rather, the life that lives for the ways in which that might be expressed about you at your eulogy, that, that is the life of rest. And the question is, why do we still so go for the former and for, think the latter is unimportant? The storyline of the Bible is of God offering his people rest and them refusing it and forsaking it. And you may say, I don't care. So what? It's in the story. Let me ask you a question. Would you say your life is at rest? I mean, just think the last seven days. Has your life demonstrated and exhibited kind of an inner poise and resilience and ability to be unflappable? Have you never ground your teeth this week? I have. The rest of which it speaks is not simply preparation to you know, rest your muscles and rest your mind. It is about finding a rest that's deeper. And that's what gets us then, if that's the priority of the rest, that alludes to maybe a purpose we have to get to. Because what you heard in Exodus, the the Ten Commandments are listed both times, same way. But in our reading in Deuteronomy 5, we hear a different angle, a different spin on why we observe the Sabbath. So let's talk about the purpose of you and I resting, okay? Remember Adam, and David Brooks used that Rabbi Solovchik's distinction of Adam 1, I'm about conquering, Adam 2, I'm about listening to the heart of the world, about, you know, assertion, achievement, Adam 1, about compassion and humility, Adam 2, all of that's there. In the beginning, Adam and Eve are given purpose by the work that they're out to do. Go multiply, fill it, have dominion over it, cultivate it, use it well for its good and yours. That's it. And then they decide, I'm, I'm good. We got this. We don't need you anymore. We kind of like the idea of being our own gods. We'd rather not submit to your lordship. We're fine. And then what happens? The curse. And like I said, their work becomes a toil. Everything is harder now. Work is always labor. There's always effort. You're expending energy. But now you come up against all manner of frustration. You can't get bids anymore. Everything that you try to do for yourself, I go to YouTube over and over and over again because I just don't get it. It's hard. Part of that curse is not just that work becomes more difficult. Now, like Dan Barber in that Chef's table clip, this is what happens. You and I, unbeknownst to ourselves in real time, we start to make our work, it starts to become something else. It starts to become something that tries to fill a void in us. And and we keep doing it over and over and over again, thinking it will fill that void, and every time it's like, (laughs) you know, for about 45 seconds, it might. Remember the the, the famous interview with Robin Williams, uh, where um, he says, yeah, you won the Academy Award, Uh, why aren't you, like, just sort of satisfied with that? And he goes, yeah, I won the Academy Award, and then in about two weeks, uh, somebody says, uh, nanu, nanu. And uh, it's like that whole thing that he did before, and it never makes any sense to him. The what he thought would fill him and be satisfying to him forever lasted about two weeks. When we're out to fill our void with work, that's what you call a compulsion. 
something that drives you to do it over and over again, thinking you're going to get a different result every time that you try. And compulsion is just another word, albeit maybe a little bit too dramatic for our ears. That's just another version of enslavement. Where you give yourself to something over and over again, relentlessly thinking, this is going to be the time where it's finally going to make sense, and never. In the original context of Deuteronomy 5, who is he speaking to? He brings a command to the Israel. He says, who is it applied to? Everybody. Sojourner, servant, male, female, son, daughter, mother, father. It applies to everybody. And then he gives the reason. He says, remember. Remember, which, if I might come up with the, the opposite to that, what does it mean? What's the opposite of remembering? Dismembering. That the last six days, more than likely, something fundamental and vital to your inner soul has been dismembered, as, as awful and as crude as that word might be employed there. You're out to remember, reconnect with what has been taken from you or what you have left get pilfered from you in the last six days. What is it that they're out to remember? You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Your life for a time was about making bricks without straw. And then God intervened, and you were delivered. There you had no rest, and then God moves to bring you rest. Uh, we have been in our attic this week. Uh, we're going to finish out one part of it. And invariably, you go into your attic and you find all the picture albums. And you open up those albums and you think, that's our story. You remember, here's our story. What happened to us? We had bags under our eyes a lot more then. They were much smaller and easier to contain. But that's your story. And that's never going to be taken from you. And it's to your peril that you forget it. What the commandment is out to do for Israel in that moment is to say, this is your story. And the ironic thing about it is, who is Deuteronomy 5 addressed to? Not to the people who were in Egypt, but to the generation who came after them. The generation that never made a brick. It was not their experience, but it was their story. And you have to remember it. Friends, inevitably, there are some people in this room, you could probably tell me a story of somebody that came into your life and intervened at a very critical moment that that rescued you from something, that delivered you from something that was difficult, that you had all sorts of confusion and were burdened by, and they came and they they kind of brought assistance to you at just the right time. What, What impact does that have? Gratitude, sure. But here's the other impact. Whenever they walk into the room, you give them a different kind of attention than perhaps somebody else in your life. Because you know who they were to you. You know how they intervened on your behalf in that critical moment. That's what the commandment's out to do for Israel. Now, why do I mention the irony that Deuteronomy 5 is addressed to a generation who never lifted a finger in Egypt? Because now I'm talking to you, who never lifted a finger in Egypt. You never made a brick without straw in your life. You certainly didn't build the pyramids. You might have climbed them, but you didn't build them. So why should the commandment matter to you at all? I'll tell you. Because if you hop over to the New Testament, the idea of slavery, it, it still has relevance. 
if you're a follower of God, there are still things that are true of you in which enslavement still applies. In Titus 3, it says that you were once slaved, slaves to your passions and your pleasures. The things that you might have delighted doing, that you might have enjoyed doing, but the enjoyment came at such a cost to you that you didn't know how to give up to ever like loosen your grip a little bit. It became everything to you. That's an enslavement. That's a compulsion. In Galatians 4, it talks about being enslaved to that which was in nature not a god. That there are some things, as we've talked about when we talked about the first commandment, that, that you think are so important to your happiness that you won't let them go unless you have them. And you believe that if I don't have them, I can never be happy. That's your God. And that's an enslavement. And if you want to boil or distill down what is an enslavement to a passion and an enslavement to what is by nature not a God, it's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He says to the Pharisees, anybody who sins is a slave to sin. Sin is something far more than a choice. Sin is a desire. Sin is an affection for something that either is good but you have made too important or that is wicked and you still are going for something that's good in it and yet it, will all, it, it is craving for that which will kill you, even in small and sensible ways in the moment. That's sin. And the affections for it, the desires for it, are not something you easily switch off, such that it's proper to believe at sin as almost something like an addiction. I can't just so know. That's an enslavement. The only other mention of enslavement or of slavery in the New Testament that applies to anybody that might be a follower of God is what it says in Hebrews chapter 2. Of those who through fear of death were subjected to lifelong slavery. The older you get, the more you think about death. The sicker you get, the more you think about death. And when you think about death, there's all sorts of thoughts you could have. And it can motivate all sorts of things. And it's not uncommon for a lot of those thoughts and those responses to be an expression of one thing, fear. Afraid of what it will be like. Afraid of what awaits me. Afraid of what I will think when I get close. And here's the thing. You know, David Brooks was very helpful in talking about a eulogy-centered life where you think about all those qualities of character that you would hope you would have exhibited and left behind such that people want to talk about it in your eulogy. But, you know, let's be honest. Who of you... Who of us in this room are really confident that when it comes to our eulogy, that it will not just be an expression of some wild exaggerations of who we really were? Who of us isn't sometimes wondering, like we're going to be saving Private Ryan there at the end, when he's at the, nearing the end of his life, and he's looking at his kids and his grandkids, and he's looking at the, at the Omaha Beach Memorial, and he looks at his wife and he says, have I, have I lived a good life? Have I, have I been a good husband? Yeah, sure you do. The idea of living for a eulogy can be wonderful. It can also be crushing. So here's the question. If, if I can be enslaved not only to passions and, and pursuits and idolatries and sin and even the fear of death, including a eulogy that I might think will only be at best mediocre when they finally say it, what's the hope in that? 
I will tell you, it is the gospel. It is the gospel who says to you, I have come to free you. The one who lived entirely in submission to his father. The one who lived entirely at rest before the Lord. Which accounts for why he can still be obedient in the face of extreme pressure. Extreme hostility. And death. He lived at rest before his Lord. So that you might and I might know a Sabbath rest. And therefore when we place our faith in him. He is the one that begins to change us in our hearts such the things that we are passioned for, that we are perhaps idolatrously related to, of the sins that we cannot shake. He gives us a new heart that helps us to see into the folly of it, to see the insight into what it really is and to let it go. But the same one who has come to free us to arrest both now and in eternity is the same one who will say to you, yes, The life that ends up in a eulogy, it matters. But I love you no matter whether your eulogy is mediocre or amazing. This is the gospel. How do we take that purpose of reconnecting to what Jesus did so that we don't live as if he didn't? What's the practice of it? This is where I land the plane. Um, Andy Crouch wrote that book about um, the life we're looking for and he quotes a guy named Dave Murray who says this we all want to be a force but Jesus calls us to be a taste we all want to have impact we all want to make a difference as they say these days but the life that Jesus is calling us to is to to give off a certain vibe Because you can be accomplished in every sense of the word and in some ways not resemble Jesus at all. And part of the reason that can happen is because you and I have a default mode when it comes to understanding the Lord or pursuing him. And this is going to go really fast, but it's that moment from National Lampoon's vacation when they go to the Grand Canyon and this is what happens. 29 seconds, don't blink. Okay, let's go. Come on. Where's Edna? She's in the car. Good. Come on, kids. Get your butts in the car. Don't you want to look at the Grand Canyon? They were there. They saw it. Did they take it in at all? Did they give it the the, the glory and grandeur that it was due it? No. Friends, when it comes to the one who is the author even of the Grand Canyon, yours and my default position is, hey, we were here, I sat through that, I saw them, I might have tithed, can we go now? What is the practice of the Sabbath? It really splits out into two very brief things. One, it requires a shift, a shift in your thinking about what it even is. A shift from thinking that it's an edict. Hear ye, hear ye, on Sunday, close your laptop, turn off the lawnmower. It has to move from an edict to believing that it's a gift. That it's not just some sort of rule that you comply with, that it is actually for your good. What does Jesus say at the end there of that little moment in Mark chapter 2? 
Man was not made for the Sabbath. Man was not made to work for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was there to work for you. It is your gift from him for your good. So how do you treat it as the gift that it is rather than some edict that you just sort of check a box on? It, it really comes down to three things. One, and you've heard me say it before, one means preparation. You get ready for what you do today. You get your work done on Saturday. You get your homework done, I said the word, on Saturday. You, you get all you can done before here. Now look, some of you that are on call on Sundays, firemen, doctors, works of necessity and mercy as our confession speaks of it, you are doing the work of what a Sabbath is out to do, to bring mercy. That's what the Sabbath is for. So in no way are you in violation of the intention of the Sabbath if you're on call on Sunday. If your roof is leaking, fix the roof leak. It's for your good. But in all other things that can wait, you have to finish that on Saturday. You prepare for all sorts of things in advance. You prepare for this day too. You prepare, and then you abstain. You set stuff aside. You let it go. Let the grass grow. Let the emails get read later. You, you set those things aside. Why? Not for the sake of setting things aside but for the sake of doing the third thing, and that is to attend. To give your attention to what he has done for you. To give your attention to how you are new as a consequence of what he has done. That's the point. That's the reason. And you attend to him by coming, by gathering, by hearing, by singing, by praying. But let me ask you, do you ever reflect on what you've heard? Do you ever discuss it? with those who are here? Do you, ever, do you ever pray about one thing that you might have heard? Not all of it, one thing. And has it ever led to any kind of repentance? This is attending. Friends, I know everybody in this life wants to get transformed really quickly. But the next time that you see an acorn that has become a tree that has uprooted a sidewalk, I want you to realize that's what the Sabbath is. In the moment, you may not feel like it matters at all. But over time, it is shaping you. So that you then come to know, value what ends up in a eulogy, more so than what ends up in a resume. But you get to value this one truth more than all. Jesus is your resume. And Jesus is your eulogy. And the extent to which we reflect on that and come to rest in that is what affords us the rest that this day is all about. Let's pray. So let it begin with me and us that we might take you at your word and receive this kind of day as a gift and to honor you in it and uh, to not afraid, to be not afraid to be different so that we as a people would be different in this world. You have come to give us rest, but you have come to give this world rest And you will do that by inviting us into it, if only to have a taste of what is yet to come, a rest that will be unequaled, a rest that will be storied. In Jesus' name, amen.